I'm sure you've all been watching the Olympics. La flamme olympique est sur le point de faire son entrée dans le stade. The Olympic flame is now approaching the stadium. Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the lasting technological changes brought about by the pandemic and how technology can potentially help solve the other challenges facing humanity. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Yee. Now, that clip uh, at the beginning of this show I played wasn't from Tokyo, but instead it was from the Salt Lake City Winter Games back in 2002. And our guest today to the great indoors is Sandy Ducat, an American Paralympic athlete. Now, Sandy had her leg amputated above the knee at the age of four, and she has competed at the Paralympics and won a series of medals at the Salt Lake City Games in 2002 and in Turin in 2006. Sandy has also competed internationally in swimming, triathlon and running and as of february 2013 she held the marathon world record for above knee amputee women sandy is involved in some great initiatives around the world to help athletes and individuals who require prosthetic limbs and sandy's story is one of determination passion compassion and true athleticism so i'd like to welcome to the great indoors today sandy ducat Sandy, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. No, thank you very much for joining us. And where are you enjoying the great indoors from today? I am lucky to live in Denver, Colorado, where I am today. (laughs) Nice. We like Denver very much. So it's a beautiful city. And um, what have you been doing lately that you haven't been able to do during the... um, you know, the lockdown and the and the last 15 months that has given you some joy? The list is endless on my end. I, I know these were tough times for a lot of folks, but I kind of dove into some self-care during this time. Um, things that I haven't touched on, like physical therapy that I needed to do from lingering injuries. I uh, learned to scooter with my son in the park. So I've learned to drop into some bowls in the skate park, which was whether exciting or maybe a little dumb, not quite sure yet, but it was fun for the challenge. And what um, just happened most recently was rejoining my family for kind of our annual family vacation that we got to spend together on a lake in Tennessee. So most of us have not been together over the past two years. And to come together to have that celebration and really find the joy in being together was, you know, something irreplaceable that we have missed for the last 15 months. Look, you've had a, an incredibly impressive um, athletic career over the years with the U.S. Paralympic team. and and um, But let's go right back to the beginning because it's an amazing story that you have, uh, Sandy. So tell us a little bit about yourself, the, the early years and the journey that you've been on. Sure. And you're right, Matt. It starts right from the beginning. I, I was born um, with a shortened femur bone, 
which only allowed my leg to grow half length compared to my left leg, which is full length. And it was something noticed right at birth. And the doctors came in and prepared my parents that they do think something is not quite right with my right limb and leg. And they wanted to do some x-rays and see what was going on. And that was when they discovered that the femur bone was much smaller than my left leg. And I can only imagine like really thinking from my parents and mostly my mom who was in the hospital for multiple days with me just waiting to hear what the doctors were going to conclude. And I said, growing up in the 70s, uh, there wasn't this resource, this online community and support network that could help um, understand what was going on. Because once they knew that my legs were going to be two different lengths, it's just like, what do we do now? Because the lower half of my leg um, grew from basically my hip, which is where my knee is, which is not a functional knee, but it's it's mechanically, it's very interesting to think about the structure of your body and not really having that pelvic bone and that ball and socket with the femoral head. Like that doesn't exist on the right side of my body. So keeping that in mind, and as we progress through my story and learning like all the athletics I have done, it's pretty phenomenal to think about that I've done this all without an without a intact hip socket. So literally, it was like the strength that I built early on allowed me to kind of work uh, progress into the athlete that I, I have become. So the early advice was just to kind of wait it out for some years to see how my legs truly would develop. And literally at that time, it was, let's see what new technology or new medical advancements may come out during these early years of my life to kind of combat what's going on and make a decision then. So really at the age of four, my parents were advised by multiple surgeons to go ahead and amputate my right foot. And, you know, I, I remember bits and pieces about that, but I think this the, the main tagline that I learned at this time is my parents really made this decision so I could have kind of that life that my brother and my sisters had. And I was, a, I'm the youngest of four and they've already seen this kids getting out to play. I mean, play is the most important thing in, in a child's life and to them recognizing that early on and without delaying this timeline of keeping me in this prosthetic that was just like a stilt under my leg, they thought if they could amputate my foot sooner, they could give me that gift of, of mobility, of independence, and, and a bit of freedom. And my parents love the story that like I had the amputation in 1976, got fitted with my leg as soon as my leg limb was healed. And she's just like, I went from, you know, using a walker in one day to running the next day and there was no looking back. And I just think the tools that we give to each other, especially a parent to their child um, about what what can be successful and what you can achieve, like really was what was given to me from day one. And I also, I credit that I am the youngest and my parents were like, we didn't even have time to think about you really. You just were in the group and you were out on the playing field with everybody else. So those early kind of, you know, lessons learned, whether I placed them subconsciously in my head or somewhere they were tucked in those important messages. Like I just grew up with this determination and I, I wish I could, you know, I get out asked often, how do you, how do you teach grit? How do you find grit? And 
I don't think there was any one lesson that learned, but it was an internal drive that I found um, that I just wanted to prove to people because I, I think early on in my community sports and to school sports, I saw the naysayers. I saw the looks that were given to me and the doubters that were uncertain. Like of every time I wanted to try something, there was that hesitancy. Do we let her or not? And before people could really make that decision, I already decided that I was going to do it. So whether it was flying across the monkey bars or hanging upside down from the monkey bars locked by my knees, which one being a prosthetic leg, you know, those, those uh, were the moments that I think I taught even my parents that I was going to figure out a way to do it. And that mentality carried me through my youth sports very much into um, my high school sports where swimming was my biggest, uh, probably like athletic, like really relied on swimming um, because I didn't use my prosthetic leg and it was freeing. Like no matter what was happening with my, my prosthetic, like whether it was broken or not fitting great, I could always jump in the pool and keep up with my peers. And as a teen and especially in those really tough years, it just gave me some self-esteem and probably more confidence than if I didn't rely on a sport that wasn't dependent on my prosthetic. Um, so really when I hit my college years, I really kind of wa- like, I was like, okay, that must be the end of my sporting, you know, career because, you know, I can't, I mean, who, how am I going to compete at the collegiate level? Like I didn't even entertain the idea. And that may be just something that I will look back in my life and be like, why, why did I stop now? But I just thought it was the natural progression. I went to college and then I was going off to get a career. And it wasn't until the mid 90s when I was um, in my mid 50s, 50, sorry, my mid 20s. And someone approached me who was an amputee. And he looked at me and said, you know, he's, you know, 70 years old and is challenging me about, well, if you're this great athlete, why haven't you done anything in the Paralympic Games? And I remember like just stopping in my track and thinking like Paralympic Games, that's something I've never heard of. I've heard of Olympics and Special Olympics, all great organizations, but I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. And he informed me about this sporting event that recruits individuals with physical disabilities from all over the world, all over the world to compete on this elite platform just after the Olympic Games, not only just after the Olympic Games, but using the same venues. So now, you know, the same training facilities, the same ski hills, the same, you know, swimming pools and stadiums. Those are all our venues as well. And I was really blown away by first not having the knowledge of this organization, um, you know, kind of being a little disappointed just thinking of my youth and what maybe I could have done in my mid to late teens versus now my mid twenties. And as soon as I learned about the organization, I found it an adaptive, um, right. Uh, uh, an adaptive sport program, which from the range of wheelchair basketball all the way to adaptive swimming to alpine skiing to all the sports you can think about and that are known in the Paralympics, I just started playing everything. I wanted to find my niche. And the first place I jumped was back in the pool and never getting back to my high school times. I, I was rewarded with something even greater. And that was my disability community. Like I grew up thinking I was kind of this lone survivor of the amputees. And I had to figure this out on my own growing up in a smaller town in Ohio. 
I just didn't have those resources provided to me or the network of other amputees. So I was like a child again. And I remember just getting into the pool and going to the 1996 Paralympic trials that were held. Um, We're going to be in Atlanta. And I jumped into the pool to compete for the first time on a level playing field. This was the first time I was standing on a block with seven other women on one leg. And you couldn't have a truer competition than that. And all my life, I've been struggling against you know, able-bodied competitors, which, you know, it's no complaint. And it was probably the driving force to get me to where I am. But I always just wonder what I could have done if I was competing, you know, a decade before um, than than where I was in my mid-20s. But that didn't stop me from like seeking out new opportunities. And very soon I was brought out to a clinic on um, a little ski hill in, in Wisconsin. And I thought it was the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. And they took me out on a one ski and outriggers, which are adaptive poles with little ski tips on the bottom. And, you know, most people think you're supposed to ski on all three, but really that's just a balance point as you would use maybe ski poles if you were skiing with two legs. And I stood on the top of this hill and I was just like, no way. Now, granted, it would take me 10 seconds to get down this hill now. But at that time, this was something that just was not possible in my mind. And one of the volunteer instructors literally had to get behind me because there was a little bit of a roller in the top of the hill. And he had to ski, like pick me up like you would your child and ski you over the first hump. And I really remember being so scared that I wouldn't be able to stop. I wouldn't be able to turn and all these early lessons really um, influenced me to maybe stop at the end of that first run. It was super icy being in Wisconsin. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm 25 years old. And all I saw was injury, 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 which eventually after like a couple times going up to this little ski resort, I did break my elbow. So I wasn't too far off what was going to happen. But I, um, I try to hit some moguls on some ice and my outriggers stopped and my elbow twisted around it. So happy to say that's never happened since once I learned that lesson. But soon I was brought out to the Colorado Rocky Mountains and I learned very quickly that this may be a sport I really want to give time and attention to. And if anything, being on one leg for so many years taught me balance. And once I got out to the Rockies and I saw other individuals with all these different abilities skiing in front of me, I wanted to figure out how to get better. And I remember from that one event, someone told me that I he saw something in me that maybe I didn't see in myself. And he told me to write 2002 on my ski because he was just like, you're going to go to the Salt Lake City Paralympic Games in 2002. And I always say the power of words, the things we say to each other, the things we say to ourselves and how influential we can be in someone's life that we don't even know. Um, And I did just that. I packed up from Chicago where I was living and I moved out to Colorado um, to Winter Park and trained with their program called the National Sports Center for the Disabled. And it's one of the largest adaptive ski programs in the world that teaches individuals with all abilities from around the world. And they've been doing this for decades. And from there, I learned to ski and learned to race simultaneously. So not only did I take a sport that I was familiar with and then make it to the next level, I had to learn the sport first. And so long went the days of like 
wishing I started earlier in the swimming pool, I found a new outlet and it was probably the outlet that I needed to really drive me to the next level, which was going to the Paralympic Games. And fortunately, I was able to make um, the 2002 Games and then following the 2006 Games in Torino, Italy. And again, the icing on the cake is coming back with medals. Um, I was able to capture two bronze medals in Salt Lake and then finally concluding with one bronze in the Torino Games. So I, I would have to say that um, this little kid from Canton, Ohio, was never dreaming about becoming a ski racer back in the day. But that's what I say. Like, you know, when one door presents, like, do you do you open it and go through it or do you go the safe path and, and stick with what you know? And if I would have never had those early lessons of grit and determination and that desire to show people what's possible, I don't think I would have stood on that podium three times like I did. It's an amazing story, Sandy. And I, because obviously the Olympics is on right now and we've got, I think it's the 16th Paralympics following on in Tokyo in, in about a month's time. The one thing that I look at it uh, and think it's just being a part of it, representing your country, that whole atmosphere, the whole feeling of being there. That's something really special, right? As well as winning the medals. <laughs> right. And kind of going into my first games in 2002, you know, you, I was an underdog. I wasn't really known on the international stage because I had, um, Really, the first three years prior to making the team, I didn't have a lot of success in finishing races. Like it just, I would get pieces of the races down very well, but I would never cross the finish line. So it took a long time to to build this. I shouldn't say a long because it was three years, but in the, in the scheme of it, I came on to the Paralympic Games without ever competing at a World Cup. So I didn't know the international players. I didn't know the other skiers. I've only heard of them. I knew their reputation. They did not know me. So I got to go onto this stage as the unknown. And walking into the Paralympic Games for the very first time, you already feel like you've won. Like you're in your home country, you're marching into, you know, a stadium filled with 60,000 people chanting, you know, USA. And you feel like, how could you say you haven't won? Like I took this sport, I took this on this journey and look, I made it at the highest level. And it's funny because you're in this moment, like Stevie Wonder performed, you know, it's raining, everybody's energized and I'm like, woo. And then the next day they're like, okay, now you have the downhill. And you're like, oh, this is legit. Like now I have to perform. Like that wasn't, it wasn't just packaged in that one moment, even though it felt like it at the time. And uh, so really once I got out on the slopes, you quickly remember why you were there. And I um, was super uh, energized to get out there and, and perform at what I thought. And I remember a coach gave me advice. A couple of pieces that, I was, I, uh, that they shared with me was, one, nobody remembers a slow ski racer. And secondly, your finish line is 
into the stands, like, because I kept falling before the finish line in prior races. So they wanted me to see the finish line, like literally where everybody was cheering for us. And so I would visualize coming down the last pitch where I needed to get to before falling before the finish line. So those two pieces of advice, I kind of unleashed what I learned. And I had my family there, my parents who never saw me ski before. And downhill, you know, as a Paralympic skier, we get into speeds that are closer in the like 70 miles per hour where Olympians will get, you know, maybe closer to 90. Like that's the discrepancy there. But you have to remember I'm on one ski. I don't carry the same like friction on the skis that somebody with two skis would. So my parents never seeing this have, um, I have more photos of my parents reaction about me coming down the hill at like 70 miles per hour than me because they were in shock. They had no clue what to to expect from being at the Paralympic Games, but they were completely blown away by the performance of of all athletes, let alone seeing their daughter coming down the hill at the speeds that I I was. So it was the second speed event in Super G where I won the my medal. And I was uh, a little bit motivated by you. I don't know if you know anything about ski racing, but there's lots of delays. Like in all sports, you have your ups and downs, but there could be course delays. Someone might've fallen, they have to repair a gate. And I was really motivated by that race because I had to use the bathroom badly, like all the water consumed everything else. So probably the biggest distraction was that I needed to get down as fast as I could. And it worked. And on that first day, we had a Team USA podium sweep and myself coming in bronze medal, you know, in third position. So um, yeah, so it is one thing. But then when Torino happened, I already had that big glory of marching into the Paralympic Games. And I'm so thankful that I changed my mind because we already had our downhill training runs prior to the opening ceremonies. We had the opening ceremonies at night and the next day we were getting up to race on the downhill. And I thought, why would I distract myself like by going to the opening ceremonies? And I remember last minute throwing on my uniform and chasing the bus like, no, I'm going to go. And it was the best decision because that really is part of the experience and part of the community, this global community that is, you know, built at the Paralympic and Olympic Games. And so I thankfully do not have to regret not going to those opening ceremonies and, um, you know, competed all week and last day of slalom, which is a a technical event, is typically my best um, discipline. I was able to come home with my third um, bronze medal of my two games combined. So I was very thankful that I brought my parents to Italy to see me on the the podium. No, it's amazing. It's an incredible, I'm just getting excited, you know, thinking about it. I can feel, you know, obviously because with it all being on right now, and, and like you said, that sense of community and that sense of the of the occasion is, is, like you said, you're a winner when you get there, right? You feel like you've achieved something before you've even started competing. And then to compete and come away with something, uh, it's um, it really is uh, inspiring, Sandy, inspiring. So, Tell us a bit about your involvement with Adaptive Spirit, because that's how we got to know you um, originally and, 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 and what happens 
with um, with that organization. Sure. Um, so the organization in itself is really a trade association that draw like brings in the industry of telecommunications together. It's business relationship building, it's networking, it's getting together through education and best practices, right? Like this, this group is amazing because I often can look at the disability community and see it in the telecommunications industry. We're always trying to adapt to make things be the most, you know, most successful that they can be for individuals in all areas of communication, right? The content providers, you know, the data providers, the cable companies, everybody has to come together to fine tune this, these products. And that's the same with disability. We're constantly adapting to our given lives, like of what we're kind of overcoming and achieving and whatnot. So this organization that was started um, due to somebody at the time who was good friends with an individual who broke his back skiing. And he was, um, joined the U.S. Disabled Ski Team, as it was known back in the 80s and 90s, and they basically were running out of money. And they partnered with the, with the guy's best friend who broke his back. And, you know, at the time, um, he worked in the cable industry and then eventually with ESPN and Disney. And he just said, hey, to some of his business buddies, like, let's get together and try to support these athletes. And he built this event out of like a friend breaking his back and seeing the potential of what these athletes could do, but also seeing the lack of resources. And, you know, we can compare this later, but the Olympics versus Paralympics, you know, what everybody is seeing now is not how it was for Paralympians, you know, 20 years ago. So the timeline is completely different from what the resources um, Olympians were getting to Paralympians. Now we're over, you know, shadow. I mean, we're bombarded, I should say, with awesome like commercials you know toyota including comcast including all these in industries including the images and like of paralympians as well as their olympic counterparts but we were very much the unknown we were just this organization that wasn't even run by the paralympic committee there was no overseeing u.s olympic committee as we know today so this small group of individuals built upon this and um, every year it got bigger and better and more of the industry would come together to eventually every year unveil now for the last 26 years, this event has taken place. So it's an industry event where there's amazing conferences and education sessions and just networking opportunities. But the other piece of it is it is also a fundraiser for the uh, the Paralympic snow sport team. So you have para snowboarding, the cross country and Nordic biathlon, and then Alpine. When I was an unknown skier, I was actually invited to this event. They kind of brought this team hopeful to adapt to spirit. At the time it was called Ski Tam. And usually it was like, that was your almost next step to getting on the team. So, you know, if you were identified to go to this event, you were most likely going to make this team. So I made, I think, I was about the fifth um, ski tam adaptive spirit event that I was invited to. And I met incredible people that were just passionate about this movement so much so that this became our biggest fundraiser to help support the athletes and their budgets to move forward. And over the last, you know, 20, 
five years, we have seen the numbers grow in terms of the attendance as well as the financial you know, commitment at the end of the event. And we are able to now have our athletes, you know, train at the Olympic Olympic training centers, have the right resources, gear support, everything that's very costly. Because not only do you need the right equipment to be at the top, you also need the right prosthetics, you need the right sit skis, you need the right wheelchairs. So we add this layer of, of cost that other athletes, you know, may not have to. A swimmer, I always think about, you know, a speedo and some goggles, but a lot of the other athletes have specific training resources that they need that are also very costly. I don't think people understand the cost of adaptive equipment. So with that, with adaptive spirit, I went as an athlete, I was thankfully sponsored by the women's entertainment, the We channel, I was their ambassador for many years while I was skiing. So I became a spokesperson on behalf of that and other athletes had amazing corporate sponsors as well that all came from adaptive spirit. And so my, my life has kind of circled back to my son now is, you know, in school and I was looking for a part-time job and Adoptive Spirit came knocking on the door and they're like, nobody knows this better than you and what this means to work with the athletes and helping them build their success on the road. So I get to be, I, for the last three years, I've been part of their journey um, out there networking for them and advocating on behalf of these Paralympic snow sport teams. And this year, especially, it's super exciting because we're going now. I mean, I don't think people realize Come, you know, January, February, March, we are gearing up for the Olympic and Paralympic Games of 2022, which will take place in Beijing. So we have some athletes now that are trained um, for their summer sport. They came off their winter season, are now getting gearing up for the Paralympics, and then they will turn around and prepare for now the Beijing Games in, in March of 22. So a lot of these athletes only had months in between to transition their sports. Um, so yeah, so I'm very thankful to be in this platform helping these athletes because I lived in their shoes. I know the value of support and I know when you know you have this community rallying behind you, it's amazing how, I, and people can say it's pressure, but I think it's pressure and motivation at the same time, because this is your family that wants you to succeed and they're behind you no matter what. And when at the end of the day, when you get back to this event, whether you stood on the on the podium or not, they rally behind you of, of just the successes of dedicating your life to representing Team USA and, and being out there. And a lot of people really have a hard time imagining that they could do this if they were ever faced, you know, with a with a disability that, you know, would maybe feel like they would it would take them out of the ball game, so to speak. And we'll talk about the pressure and, and, and the mental challenges in a little while, but also tell us about the ROMP um, initiative, Sandy. That sounds pretty interesting. It is. So ROMP stands for the Range of Motion Project. So this is a, a, a global kind of prosthetic care program. Um, their whole mission is to provide prosthetic care to those living um, in mostly developing countries or where resources are not available. And we, I talked um, a little earlier about cost of adaptive equipment and prosthetic care alone, like the numbers are astronomical. And 
I think for me, it's just like one of those things that I've never walked into my prosthetist and not received a leg. Like that would be what? I don't get a prosthetic. But I learned um, a handful of years ago uh, that, wow, my, I was humbled very quickly. And when this program was introduced to me, I didn't look at it from somebody else's perspective. And we work a lot in South America. We look, work a lot in Guatemala and Ecuador. And so many people do not have access to care. And I actually have a prosthetic, uh, a friend who's an amputee, and he was going through prosthetic school at the time. And in about 2005, he came up with this idea about taking prosthetic care globally, and especially into countries that don't have it. And I just thought what a admirable goal he had. And I, I have to say, like, even though I knew he did this, I lost touch with him for a long time. And it wasn't until 2015 that this organization kind of circled back into my life where we were approaching the 20th anniversary of the American, the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And all embassies around the world um, were going to be provided with some extra funds if they would host some kind of celebration, like the American embassy, if they would host some kind of celebration. And with my friend who is American, but, um, you know, grew up in Chicago, but took his prosthetic practice down to South America, he found out about that and instantly started building on an idea to get individuals who are living with limb loss out to the mountains. Like, let's get them climbing. Let's demonstrate what we could do. So twofold, it was one, to bring awareness to the this population that wasn't receiving the care that they needed, um, fundraising, and also getting government support, like kind of combining this whole network of individuals to also change the mindset, like so much in, in different um, countries. And, you know, we do our own struggles here in the States about what disability is and what it's not, but so much in other in cultures, it's taboo. Like maybe you, you know, why, you know, you are outcasted and you're not supposed to be seen in kind of mainstream, you know, society, whether it's working or going to school or even playing sports, it's kind of like, no, you are supposed, you're meant to stay home. And that mentality has, you know, I've received that mentality. Like I, that is stuff that has been put on me, let alone living in, in a country that without the right resources, it's, it's very, um, stigma placed on, you know, individuals with disabilities. So, um, you know, I love a good challenge. And at first it was like, yeah, I want to climb a 19,000 foot and, you know, peak in Ecuador. It's a, it's a volcano, um, that we were climbing. It was Cotopaxi, but unfortunately at that time it started showing signs of erupting. So we soon got, uh, our goal was placed on Kayambe, which is another 19 foot, you know, volcano, that wasn't active. And, you know, I got down to Ecuador uh, and, and I was, again, instantly humbled by what this meant. And I think, again, all my years of growing up with disability and I think, you know, my parents from day one, they never thought once that I would be denied care. That's just not how it works. And so many individuals living without care was right in front of my face. 
And it started to mean a lot more about what this mission meant and how to bring better awareness and better accessibility to countries that, you know, especially Ecuador, where there's not a lot of accessibility offered, as well as just programs like just having the prosthetic care facilities. And my friend who went down there to start ROP, he trained all the individuals that are working in Guatemala now to have a self-sustaining clinic that individuals come from all over South America, mostly Guatemalans, but you do have people from Honduras and other neighboring countries that do come in to get this care. And they have created where somebody who is an amputee can now get fitted with a prosthetic leg at a very nominal cost. And so much of the fundraising is to provide that care. And then we also have mobile clinics that take it through. Um, Guatemala into Honduras and to Mexico and to other countries uh, that do need the care. And some of it is literally going to a village and saying, oh, we've heard that there's another amputee in this village and our mobile van starts driving to the next village looking for an individual to help support. So we have individuals that do come to where the clinic is, but we also have a lot of word of mouth that you know, we can talk about it through the pandemic and that became a great way to offer care is through our mobile clinics. So climbing and representing, you know, this range of motion project romp, um, really changed my life in ways that I wasn't expecting. And it became a mission um, to be part of this organization as a board member and as a funder and as much as we can do to give people the opportunity. And it's not necessarily to make anybody a Paralympian, but I think about it like so many of the stories are like, I just, I want to go grocery shopping with my family. I want to go to church with my family. I want to just walk out of my house on two legs and, or with an arm or get back to work. And that really put it into perspective of why we romp does what they do. And since 2005, they have fitted over 4,000 prosthetics and that's both here in the States as well as in South America in Mexico. So very proud of this organization. It's rompglobal.org. And you can see some amazing videos that have been produced from our climbs. So I unfortunately did not summit Kayambe. The weather ended up not being on our side. And in 2019, I was invited back and now Cotopaxi was no longer spewing lava. So we were able to tackle that volcano. And I was very happy to be able to stand on top of 19,000 feet representing the amputee community and exactly what is possible if the right tools and resources are provided. And I'm thankful for my lifelong care. And I don't want others to go without that care because nobody deserves it's it's not a luxury, you know, to get a prosthetic. It's it's a necessity. It's it's a healthcare necessity. And we don't want it Absolutely. to look we want it to be that, not just something that's given only to a handful of people that can afford it. That's incredible, Sandy. I think that initiative and, and adaptive spirits really taken my breath away. Really incredible initiatives. And obviously, in the, over the last 15, 16 months, we've been through this uh, pandemic. And one of the things we talk to our guests about on this show is how has technology helped? But obviously, during the pandemic, how has technology helped when it's come um, 
to yourself personally and in helping and being part of these other initiatives has it stifled it has it amplified it has there been uh, ha- has there been any interesting um situations that that has arisen yeah I, you know there's always pros and cons with everything right and, and and there was a lot of sadness that hit hard and impacted hard especially in like guatemala where um, just mobility, moving, getting around the country from city to city was was stopped during, you know, a lot of the COVID time and even in Ecuador. So clinics were shut down immediately. So that, that did limit the number of amputees and individuals that we could help and serve during those times. What it did do, and I think this is amazing, like we've all seen it, right? The creativity that's come out of COVID, whether through technology, the way we've conducted school meetings, and even just bringing the world closer together, right? Like the technology allowed um, for Romp to now build their mobile clinic, like their vans, they could update them. And they really focused on having the right Uh, equipment in the van to take this and now fit somebody on the road before a lot of the care would have been, let's just fine tune something. We'll grind down some lines or do this with the leg. But now we were able to, to build prosthetics in the community where the individual was based on technology. We did a lot of 3d printing and figuring out ways that we could make lighter and more affordable resources and, at higher numbers. So we, Romp was able to work with other, especially universities, one being, it was, oh, I wish I could name the the university in Canada, but it was a very close relationship where they built this new arm that now um, could use the nerves and brain waves to function. So a lot of this got fine-tuned during this time, yet at the same time, it impacted people's lives because they couldn't get around to get the care. Um, personally, like for me, my prosthetic care is in New York and with everything shut down, we turned to the online community of working together virtually. And that also made care seem closer. Like I could show what was going on and whatnot, and we could work together, you know, virtually now. And I, you know, I think the big impact for athletes, um, it slowed down the training and the traveling, which is good and bad. I think athletes were able to fine tune equipment, athletes who might've put equipment like on a lesser priority and just worried about training and racing now broke down in like fine tune equipment needs that could have been used and working on stuff that could help advance their career, you know, and being able to be more competitive as they head to the Paralympic games. I think the negative side is, you know, we thrive in that competing environment and without that, and being on the playing stage as often as we are prior to the Paralympic Games, you know, that's probably what could, you know, could impact the mental health of, of what athletes are feeling when they're not performing on the on a international stage. And that's that preparation is what really gets you ready when you march into the Paralympic or the Olympic Games. So like anything, I think technology brought us closer. We didn't have to travel all over to speak with our coaches. We weren't at these training camps. We could bring it, you know, um, more athletes could stay closer to family, which is also a gift during this time, thankful to the online community of support and and training outlets that athletes had. 
So uh, as I said, there's a lot of positives, but I, I, you know, the negatives are kind of what we're seeing. And with some athletes not feeling like with that year delay, they, some of them, you hear the stories were at their prime in 2020 and now just feeling this one year didn't prepare them for the 21. And then you had others who faced injuries that would have impacted their, their success at the games, but now had this extra year. And some of those are the athletes that have performed um, at a level that they weren't prepared to perform at because the gift was given to them with the year delay. So everything's going to, you know, help someone and then at a cost impact another person probably more negatively. And what I mean, we're going back to the Olympics now, which is great, and and, and the, the upcoming Paralympics, and it's all about stories. I, f- I feel like the Olympics is all about a story. What what's been your favorite story or highlight so far from from Tokyo? Sure, I am an Olympic Paralympic junkie, so I watched as much coverage as I possibly <laughs> could, and I've taken a lot in and noticed a lot too of of what I've seen. And you know, I was when I was with my family in Tennessee, there was so much like, oh, these poor athletes, these poor athletes, their families. And believe me, like I think some of my success is built on the community that was there, but how much harder would it have been if we looked at the athletes and said nobody goes? Like, thankfully, they are there. They have been training. They have put so many things in their lives on hold to be competing at this level. So I look at it as such a gift for these athletes to be there. And thankful, again, for technology that we can have all the support where we're watching the athletes talk to their families after a race or after a medal has been earned. And those are beautiful moments. But What I think it's done, and this is just my perspective of of watching the games and pretty much every sport, so many times you become, when you're not on a team sport, it becomes you. It's you competing, it's you in your training run, it's you in the finals, and then you go back, you warm up for the next race. And I think what they've done without family and friend support being there, I've watched this cohesiveness build amongst teams where maybe in other games, not saying it wasn't there, but I think athletes are relying on each other to find that same camaraderie, that same support, especially in individual sports like swimming and track and field when they're not doing relays. But athletes that are staying in the stands cheering on another teammate, I'm not going to say that was often common. Like that's probably not a common practice at the Olympic Games. It's getting back into the village, you know, getting into your own mindset of what you need. And I think the best moment was really at the conclusion of the swimming. And I watched Team USA cheer on the men's four by 100 medley relay, you know, from Katie Ledecky on that Team USA filled the stands with all the athletes cheering them on. And I just thought, would this have happened if we had family and other community support there. And I'm, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I'm thankful that Team USA really built. And I think it happened world like globally. I don't think it was just a Team USA thing. But those moments really showed what the power of the games are about and the power of the community of athletes. And I think they rose to the occasion to provide that um, unconditional support and cheer for for their teammates and for their competitors. 
No, it's it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. Without the crowd, you know, the, and and when you're in, in the individual events, it could become incredibly lonely and 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 a lot of pressure. And I think one of the things that we always explore on on this podcast is the separate pandemic that has occurred over the last uh, eighteen months around mental health. And and wasn't it interesting the story about Simone Biles were drawing to focus on 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 her mental health and and that you know that separate issue being brought to to and 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 put under a spotlight that that's something that's never happened before. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really interesting development. Yes, and for sure, and you know we we saw it a little bit with Naomi Osaka Osaki when she was um, competing at uh, the French Open and and into Wimbledon and some other you know international competitions. Yeah. It's just there is an expectation uh, of athletes to be on and to be in the spotlight, and I'm. It's hard because you can't separate the two. You don't get just to be the athlete you want it. And we've seen it over, there's decades of examples, like the Bodie Millers of the ski world. Like he just wanted to compete. He didn't want to be the face of the support of the sport. And again, it comes kind of hand in hand of this expectation that once you are in the spotlight and once you have these successes, it's almost like our lives are supposed to be opened up for everybody. And I'm not weighing in whether this is right or wrong. I'm just weighing into what I see happen. Also, I can relate it to disability. Having a visible disability, I feel like I open the door that people think they can ask just right out what happened to me, whether I'm walking in the grocery store or down the street or at a park. If it's seen, I have, I've had people ask me, oh, cancer, or are you a wounded warrior? And again, things that we would never say to somebody else if we didn't see something visible like a prosthetic leg. Um, so it is this kind of vulnerability that goes along with being in the spotlight. And you never know when it's going to take its toll on you, right? Like you can't say, oh, wow, why did it happen to Simone now? Like nobody can say. It's just whatever led up to that moment was her moment to say like, look, it's not safe for me to compete in sport right now. And I give more credit to individuals who can say that and step down because that takes a lot of courage. Because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to criticize these actions, whether it's Simone or anybody who has done this in the past, where they just don't feel. And I can relate. Like, I was leading up to the Paralympic Games, and I was, you know, an older athlete at this time. Now I'm, you know, mid to late 30s competing, and I just didn't, I couldn't. My body just said no more to me. And I remember going to my coach and said, like, if I don't compete now, like it's going to be disastrous at the Paralympic Games. And he said, if you compete now, it will be disastrous. If you don't, you 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 know, who knows what door will open up for you at the Paralympic Games. And if, if I would have fought myself through those like last few World Cup races, I definitely think it would have impacted my performance. And and again, athletes are skiing at 70 miles per hour. Simone is flipping. I can't even count the number of times that she is flipping and turning and twisting that I give her a lot of credit for owning her feelings and not feeling the pressure that she had to perform. Because at the end of the day, it's not for anybody else but herself. And only her life would be impacted if she came across a serious injury. So 
I'm thankful that this is become, being taken seriously and that we can give true attention to the Michael Phelps of the world that are speaking out, athletes like Naomi and now Simone that we listen. Like athletes are our spokespeople. And I, I have a feeling if they bring this to the forefront and, I, you know, they are going to build the platform for mental health moving forward. And I'm, I'm, I'm jumping forward a bit at, at the questions that I was planning, but you, you said something uh, really interesting there, Sandy. And, and, and I, you know, the, the pressure that, that is on, you know, all athletes now, and, and I saw it recently in, in the, the soccer with the English soccer team, they, their problems were accentuated, the pressure they were feeling from social media. And they, they came under an enormous amount of unfair criticism that affected them personally. And, and this is a, a contentious topic, but I'm interested to get your, your views. Is social media good for sport in general and for sports people? And is it good for the initiatives like, you know, adaptive spirit and, and, and romp that you talked about before that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think we're, I've said this so many times, this moment of inflection with social media, but what's your particular thoughts on that? Sure. I'll, I'll jump down the road of social media for organizations like Rope, Romp and Adaptive Sport, Spirit first, as I do think the value is immeasurable. Like I go back to my time growing up, being born with a disability. And if more up or more resources on social media or even just online were available, I could have had a different you know, trajectory of where I would have ended up sooner and how life would have unfolded for me. And I say that as a woman um, that I met recently was her child was going to be born with a limb deficiency that I have. And now she knows this in utero and was able to get out on social media, found somebody that knew me and we have now been connected prior to her child being born to talk about you know, my life experiences and other people I can speak to that have grown up with a similar disability. And now I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say she's ahead of the, of the game, but mentally, emotionally, like she is ready now to, to welcome this child into this world with a lot of support at her fingertips. And that's something that I, you know, my parents didn't have, they, I mean, they're just like, we don't know what we did. We just winged it. (laughs) We just figured it out in the moment. If that didn't work, we tried something else. And I think by those initiatives like ROMP and other organizations that support adaptive athletes, like, yes, I, I think it's very important that that information is out there. Now, looking at the athlete's point of view, I was very, I'm very thankful that my career happened pre social media. Um, for athletes that went to the 2012 games and athletes that went to the 2018 games in Pyeongchang, the Paralympians, I got to be an athlete ambassador. So basically I got to go and speak to them about the do's and don'ts of, of the games. And a lot of it focuses on social media. And I just like the things that they can say and can't say and use and not use and trademarks of this and that, like, it's a lot of pressure. It's not only are you training and you're racing and you're competing and all these, you know, kind of silos that you have now, you have the pressure to keep up with your social media. And I'm not good at it anyway. So I think it would have been very stressful to add that pressure on. And some people thrive in that community, and that is great. But for athletes that have that expectation that they are supposed to be out tweeting and posting, and again, it's it's my perspective. I think it adds a layer that 
that can impact a, a performance out of games. And I really, I just watched an interview with Suni Lee and there, you know, the whole thing is like, you win the women's over, you know, all around. Like Natasha Lucan said, your life will change now. And she like jumped to a million plus followers on her social media accounts and all this. And her answer was just like, it's not for me to, to, to dive into that right now. My, my goal is to perform at the games. And I thought she handled it very well in, in those words, but um, I don't know. I, I, I guess personally, I never felt like people needed to know exactly what I was doing moment to moment to get myself ready for the, the games. But I know a lot of people do and also feel like their follower followers deserve an answer in social media. So I think you just have to really know who you are as an athlete and, and as a competitor. And if that's going to impact in a negative way, I, I, I think you should know that you don't have to be on that community. <laughs> but if, if that's something that drives you, which a lot of people do love the comments and, and that support from the, their social media community, then that is the right thing. But it's knowing, again, yourself, and this goes back to mental health, you need to be true and honest to yourself. And if if it's something that is going to support you along the way, then it is a great resource and outlet. And but you also have to know, mm-hmm. like I'm sure Simone Biles has received a lot of negative feedback through those outlets about what you know pulling out and and whatnot. And we all know what what's been said, yeah. and, and and it's not always very favorable. So I don't think anybody should deserve those comments. But unfortunately, when you when that's out there, that's an easy avenue to give your input, whether you like it or not. No, that's My great. That's great. Now, <laughs> Sandy, yeah. Well, well, you're a, a figure of inspiration, right? Definitely. I think your story is inspiring. The initiatives that you're involved for are inspiring. You know, you, you, you're all about, you know, determination and, and, and mental strength. But who do you yourself look towards for inspiration? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's all those who have paved the way before me, other athletes who have opened opened doors to compete on these level playing stages. I mean, there's individuals who have set the stage for other Paralympians to be out there. Um, I mean, my family is probably the most because they, from day one, always believed that I I had a, a choice. I had a choice to be out there. And I think that's one of the biggest gifts you can give to somebody. When you take away that choice, you are making that decision for the individual. And my family never took away that from me. So I am always motivated by by my family. And they're also very athletic. And they have driven me from day one to be the athlete that I am. But I'm, I love watching individuals who you would never expect to be climbing a 19,000 foot, who just got their foot peak, who just got their prosthetic leg, you know, months before and watching what is possible and watching other individuals who face disability later in their life. Like this wasn't, you know, this isn't something I had to overcome. This is something that was just from day one. I've had to learn to live with it. But I watch individuals who tackle their injuries or loss of limb or however they've come across disability and watch that kind of no excuse mentality develop. And individuals that say, I never thought I could do this, but they did it. 
it, it just reminds me again that these are all personal and individual decisions and it's only up to you to define your road. And I often say that, you know, disability is um, nobody else gets to define it for me that I only get to define it. And disability to me is what I make it day to day. And when I watch individuals take that same mentality and apply it to their life, that that's very motivating. And that keeps me striving for more and keeps me hungry for going bigger and higher and what else could be possible. And whether that's on the playing field, or is it with my family or, you know, just figuring out how to live each day without letting disability disrupt it. And are you, what are you looking forward to the most uh, for the 16th Paralympic Games that obviously start in, I think it's about six weeks' time? Oh, geez. Yeah. I, um, one, thankful to the amount of coverage. I mean, they're expecting over 1,200 hours of Paralympic coverage. And each year that keeps growing and growing. So I look forward to seeing people that I've trained and raced with, especially in paratriathlon. Um, get out there. They swept in 2016 in the Rio Paralympic Games. Um, I'm excited to see uh, an individual who did lose her leg in combat and uh, she came out. And I remember when I was running and we both lived in Chicago at the time, she asked, how do you do it as an above knee amputee? And I said, literally, it's five seconds at a time and then 10 seconds on the treadmill and then it's 30 seconds and then it's your first lap around a track and now to have her as one of the Paralympic hopefuls uh, medalist uh, that I'm so excited to watch that race more than anything but uh, it's all the athletes I know what it takes to get there I know the sacrifices made and I'm anxious just to see everybody perform you know, at, at their best. And no matter what the results are, I know how hard it was to get there. And I'm just thankful that they will be there and they'll show off exactly what is possible despite any apparent obstacles that people think. So it's going to be advocacy, education, and overall just informing this world of what is possible when, when we give people the right tools. Well, it was great to speak to Sandy today. Really great. Really moving. An amazing individual with just an amazing, awesome story. And I hope that when you tune in to the Paralympic Games next month in Tokyo, maybe you'll watch and have a slightly different perspective and appreciation of the work and efforts these incredible athletes put in. So please subscribe to our podcast if you enjoyed today. You might not have. On all the usual podcast channels, leave a review or rating if you feel so inclined. It certainly helps us. And check out two other Amdocs podcasts that are brilliant and available now. The Future of Tech with Abishai Charlene and Points of View with our CMO, Gil Rosen. Also visit our new and improved website, amdocs.com forward slash the great indoors, where we have a treasure trove of assets to support the series. Now we'll be back in two weeks for another edition of the great indoors I'm Matt Roberts for Amdocs in Toronto and have a great day wherever you are.